You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Our brain health affects every single area of our lives. It's really a master controller of so much about us, from our metabolism to our mood. For example, we have a master gland sitting in our amazing brains called the hypothalamus. And it's the kind of the tip of the spear when we're talking about the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, this information superhighway that has so much to do with our emotions, how we feel, the expression of hormones and neurotransmitters, because there's an integration that takes place in our hypothalamus with our nervous system and our endocrine system, right? Our nervous system has to do with our feeling, our understanding, our sensing of the environment, our sensing pain and pleasure and all those type of wonderful things. And then we have our endocrine system that's associated with our hormones, also having a lot to do with how we feel. But now we're talking more in the language of a chemical messenger system with our hormones instructing all of our cells on what to do, what kind of behaviors should be taking place within our cellular communities. And that association, how's everything intermingling, connecting, getting to know each other. So we want those hormones to be in balance or it could be straight chaos. It could be like a really bad game of telephone. I don't know if you remember that game when you were a kid where somebody starts, maybe it's a line of 10 kids. Somebody starts with, maybe it's, you know, I really like toys. And then the next kid whispers it to the next kid. And by the end of the line, after it passes from kid to kid to kid, I, I like toys suddenly transforms into, I want a Rolls Royce, right? And they picture in like, I'm with DJ Khaled. Another one, you know, we got the stars on the ceiling, the whole thing. It then turned into something totally different, right? Passing the message from person to person or from cell to cell, from hormone to hormone. We got to make sure that these things are dialed in because it's going to have a deep impact on our cellular information, right? And this is the most important part because even when we think about food, it's not just food, it's information. It's cellular information. It's going to instruct our cells on what to do based on what we're putting into this brilliant system that we all, such a great honor and privilege to have this experience as a human being right now, regardless of all the craziness going on in the world, because we have this innate intelligence that we're just teeming with it. And the more that we get in alignment with it, the more that we really start to feel like life is magical. And we live in conditions where we can start to thrive instead of just trying to survive. So all of this, again, starts with the health of our brain, all right? Our brain is impacting our mood. It's impacting our metabolism. It's impacting everything about us. Now, what if there was a framework? What if there was a nutritional framework that can support our cognitive function, even with deep metabolic or even physical damage to our brains. Right now, many people are unaware, but Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative diseases of the brain are at all time highs. They just keep getting higher and higher and higher. So much so that Alzheimer's right now is inching its way into the top five leading causes of death for our citizens here in the United States. The degradation of our brains. What if there's a diet framework that can supplant that even with degradation to the brain and re-energize the brain, re-energize the brain's 
cognitive functions, right? Our memory, our ability to have focus and concentration, all these different things that tend to get lost as the brain is degrading. What if there was a diet framework that can help to address our chronic levels of mental health issues that we're experiencing as a society today as well? Again, bypassing the normal routes of treating a symptom through a pharmaceutical that's addressing maybe one neurotransmitter when we've got dozens of other neurotransmitters that are playing a role in that mental health state that the person is experiencing, right? So it's like throwing darts in the dark, medication-tipped darts in the dark trying to hit something. What if there's a diet framework that can help to address the myriad of neurotransmitters that we are producing, the mobilization of those neurotransmitters, our hormones and the like, really putting our body into a state of balance? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today with the leading expert on this subject matter and this particular diet framework. And I'm really excited because you know, this conversation is a long time coming. It's one of those things that this is an important thing for us to have in our superhero utility belt. Whether we subscribe or utilize a diet framework or not, we need to know about this for our loved ones, for our friends and family, individuals that are experiencing mental health diseases, that are experiencing conditions like epilepsy, that are experiencing cognitive decline. We need to have this knowledge base right here on hand so that we can utilize it when necessary. And the occasion for that has become more and more apparent today more than ever. So again, really, really excited about this episode. But when we're talking about cognitive performance, there are tried and true things that increase the health of our brain. And there are tried and true things that decrease the health of our brain. One of these categories that can either make or break the health of your brain, your cognitive performance, is a category of sweeteners. Yes, sweeteners impact the brain more profoundly than just about any other place in our bodies. It's because even though the brain is protected, we have this external protection with the brain being the only organ that's fully encased in hard bone, but we have internal protection in the form of the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier has a plethora of sugar gates that allows glucose in in droves. Now, we evolved not having access to this kind of sugar, but the brain does what the brain does. It's going to gobble up that glucose because it's, it's literally multiple galaxies of activity that's going on in our amazing brains, right? Trillions. There's so much going on. It's so miraculous. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And with that said, food is not just food. It's information. And... The human brain, even though it's only about 2% of our body's mass, it will gladly consume about 20 to 25% of the caloric energy that we take in. And in particular, some of the latest research has found that the brain can consume upwards of 50% of the glucose that's coming in from any given meal. It's just going to shuttle that right to the brain. So with that said, the quality of sugar that we're utilizing or sweetener can absolutely make or break our brains. Right now in the United States, the amount of sugar that we're consuming, I'm just going to say it, it's gotten insane in the membrane. All right. Insane in the membrane. Insane in the brain. Shout out to Cypress Hill. All right. It's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. The latest statistics show that the average American consumes about 70 pounds, 70 pounds of 
added sugar every year. 70 pounds of added sugar. That's sugar added on top of the already existing sugar in what most people are eating is predominantly ultra-processed foods. 60% of the American diet today is now ultra-processed foods. Sugar-laden, toxicant-laden, artificial ingredients, the whole nine, plus you add that sugar on top of that, it's a recipe for disaster. So with that said, that amount of sugar exposure is wildly inappropriate. We can ratchet that down, but also if we look at the tried and true sweetener that and what I'm going to share with you is truly remarkable. And a lot of people don't know about this because there really is nothing else like this on earth. And this has been on earth probably longer than us versus the highly refined sugar that we see on store shelves, which is a recent invention. What I'm talking about is raw honey. Unlike other sweeteners, raw honey has been found to actually improve insulin sensitivity. A recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal Nutrients detailed how raw honey intake can improve fasting blood sugar levels. Sugar shouldn't do that. But it's not just sugar. There's something really special about raw honey. It's found to improve fasting blood sugar levels, improve lipid metabolism, and reduce the risk of heart disease. Again, published in one of our most prestigious nutrition-related journals. Additionally, the scientists noted that the vast antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties that honey has is one of the standout reasons that it's able to help to reduce the risk of heart disease. On top of that, research citing the journal Evidence-Based Complementary and Alternative Medicine determined that honey antioxidants have nootropic effects such as memory enhancement, plus a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study revealed that honey was able to outperform a placebo and significantly reduce cough frequency and severity at night and improve sleep quality. What can it do? How sweet it is. The key here is raw honey. The key here is you've got to understand what's out there on the market today because most people are unaware, not just of the benefits of raw honey, but also that a lot of conventional honeys, even if they're organic, that are out there on store shelves, are unfortunately exposed and riddled with other contaminants. Not just organic means it's not sprayed with pesticides and herbicides and that's not used in the you know, pollination and the process you know, where the bees are getting the honey, that whole thing. But there can be other contaminants like heavy metals, like arsenic, like lead, like mercury, E. coli, bacterial overgrowths, salmonella, yeast, molds, all these things that should not be coming along with the incredible benefits you be, could be getting from raw honey. Where I get my honey, my superfood honey, so it's not just high quality raw honey, it also includes some of the propolis and pollen. They are utilizing third-party testing for over 70 pesticide residues and other common pervasive contaminants. Again, like DDT, like heavy metals. So we're making sure that we're getting the best honey possible and you know the difference. It is phenomenal. I love, I absolutely love my superfood honey coming from Beekeepers Naturals. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. You get 25% automatically taken off at checkout. Go to B-E-E-K-E-E 
P-E-R-S, naturals.com forward slash model. Again, 25% off. It's outrageous. They have to do that. 25% off. Amazing. Amazing. And they're doing stuff right. Head over there. Check them out. Beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model for their superfood honey. I absolutely love their propolis for the immune system. It's another thing to definitely check out. Head over there and add this to your superhero utility belt. And on that note, let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled, I Never Miss a Show by No Comprende. This show should be mandatory listening for everyone in this country, as well as all health practitioners and practicing doctors. Why there is such a disconnect between the medical industry and nutrition is confounding and infuriating. And Sean is our hope to bridge this gap. I love this show and adore Sean's innate ability to translate this information with humility, grace, and humor. I will never miss a show. You've got me on lock Mondays and Wednesdays, Sean. Thank you. No, thank you. That's amazing. Every word. I appreciate it so much. And thank you for taking the time to leave that review over on Apple Podcasts. Listen, if you've yet to do so, pop over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for the Model Health Show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing because we are just getting warmed up. On that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Dr. Dominic D'Agostino is a tenured associate professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of South Florida and a visiting senior research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. He received his bachelor's in nutritional science and biological sciences and his PhD in neuroscience and physiology at Rutgers University. His laboratory develops and tests nutritional and metabolic-based strategies for neurological disorders, cancer, and for enhancing safety, resilience, and performance of military personnel in extreme environments. Dom, as his friends call him, was a crew member and researcher on NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operation, and he continues to do research with a variety of high-profile agencies. Let's jump into this amazing conversation. We're about to nerd out, right? Get ready to really zero in, get focused, because we're going to dissect some domains of science and neurobiology that few people truly understand. It's very, very important and very powerful. Let's hit up this conversation with the amazing Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. <laughs> All right, Dom, thank you so much for coming to hang out with us. It's so awesome to see you. Great to be here, Sean. Thank you. Listen, you know that the health of our brains impacts every area of our lives. Yeah. And right now, in addition to that, neurodegenerative diseases have been skyrocketing in recent decades, and in particular, Alzheimer's disease. I was just looking mm -hmm. at some of the statistics before the show today, yeah. and it's creeping its way into the top five causes yeah. of death in the United States. Oh, yeah. And yet, most people have no idea of this kind of hidden epidemic right mm -hmm. now. So first of all, I want to ask you, if you could just share a little bit about what, what is creating Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease from what we know with science today. And also, what are some of the things that you've been doing and talking about mm -hmm. and teaching about that can help to address this epidemic? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. I've never really started off talking about Alzheimer's, but it is the very first project that I started with ketogenic therapies, right? So we think, when we think about Alzheimer's disease, classically, we think about our genetic destiny you know, is to have Alzheimer's or if our parents had it or our grandparents had it or something like that. But we are, we can be genetically predisposed to having uh, Alzheimer's disease, but it's a very, genes really drive maybe 5%, 
you know, of the upper end. Yeah. 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 And that, that's being, uh, you know, some people will say 2% or 1% or, you know, if you're APOE4 positive, for example, but we know that prevention strategies will probably, you know, have the biggest impact on this. So whatever is good for our heart is good for our brains, right? So our metabolic, our overall metabolic health will be a huge factor in influencing metabolic biomarkers that are tightly coupled to not only cardiovascular health, but whatever is good for the heart is good for the brain. So brain health too. So that is, you know, things like keeping your blood sugar in check, you know, keeping inflammation low, telling the doctor, hey, I, you know, in addition to your CBC and CMP blood work, your comprehensive metabolic panel to throw in insulin. I don't know if, I don't know, for some reason we don't measure insulin, yeah. throw in a simple measure of systemic inflammation like HSCRP, high sensitivity C-reactive protein. But these two things alone, coupled with, you know, glucose are, can be very important predictors of not only our metabolic health, but our trajectory of getting age-related chronic diseases, including Alzheimer's disease. So, so this is upfront, this is a very important thing that people should know <laughs> that metabolic health will predict us getting age-related dementias, including in that Alzheimer's disease. So a hallmark characteristic of Alzheimer's disease is glucose hypometabolism, meaning that if you scan someone who has advanced Alzheimer's disease or even early dementia, what you see in a fluorodeoxyglucose PET scan, an FDG PET scan, which is a technology that can be used to, to look at the location and aggressiveness of tumors, but we can also image the brain and it shows brain glucose uptake. In people with Alzheimer's disease, it's far less lit up, right? So it's much dimmer. So it's basically indicating that, the, that there's glucose hypometabolism. And the reason for that is largely unknown. And I think it's important to state right up front that the etiology of epilepsy or of Alzheimer's disease and other diseases that we study like epilepsy is largely unknown, right? So there could be multifaceted or multifactorial things contributing to Alzheimer's disease, but a hallmark characteristic is impaired energy production. So brain energy is impaired and no one would dispute that. The reason that we have impaired glucose metabolism in the brain is there could be a wide variety of reasons. It could be the, the vasculature and the arteries that feed the brain energy, oxygenated blood and glucose are impaired. So there's like a vascular component. There's also, we transport glucose into the brain through two different ways. At the blood brain barrier, you have the GLUT1 transporter. And at the level of the, the mitochondria and the cell itself, the neurons, is the GLUT3 transporter. And then once the glucose gets into the cell to be used by the mitochondria to make ATP, ATP is the energy currency of the cell, that we need an enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. So taking a step back, we know that it could be a combination of a decreased brain energy just through brain blood flow. Mm -hmm. So it's very common people who have Alzheimer's disease have, that have a decrease in brain blood flow. It's very common for them to have, if you look at the GLUT3 transporter on the surface of the neurons, these tend to be internalized. So you have a cell membrane with a GLUT3 transporter and that transporter can be inactive or it can be internalized inside the cell so the glucose can't get in. 
And then once the glucose is in the cell, it requires pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, which is the gatekeeper and the rate limiting enzyme for glucose oxidation. Right. And to that ATP. Yes. And there's a tons of papers. You can look at a PDH complex and Alzheimer's disease that another hallmark characteristic is a reduction in the PDH enzyme and also in the total enzyme protein, but also a reduction in the catalytic activity of that protein. So even if we make it, it's not as active. So taking a step back, this is actually what got me interested in using a ketogenic metabolic therapy, nutritional therapy for Alzheimer's disease. So it was clear in the literature that elevating ketones through fasting, through the ketogenic diet, or even exogenous ketones can elevate brain blood flow by 30% or more. Simply fasting for 24 hours in naive subjects actually increases, you can look, you can do a Doppler blood flow measurement and blood flow to the brain increases by 30%. And you could say, well, because you have less blood in the digestive organs, digesting food and things like that. So that could be it. But what's actually happening is that you have more blood in the reserves because you're not digesting the blood is not in internal organs but what also happens is that the ketone bodies actually stimulate adenosine adenosine is a vasodilator and it increases brain blood flow so transitioning away from a carbohydrate based standard american diet to a, a state of ketosis will increase brain blood flow the ketones bypass the glucose transporters so for example, in glucose transporter type one deficiency syndrome, which is a genetic inborn error metabolism, the therapy is actually ketosis, the ketogenic diet, because the ketones then replace glucose as the primary fuel for the brain. So in Alzheimer's disease, you have impaired glucose transport by virtue of a reduction in brain blood flow, uh, maybe a decrease in, of glucose across the blood brain barrier, but very likely a decrease in glucose uptake into the neurons that is a result of an internalized GLUT3 transporter or an inactive and a decrease in the total amount of pyruvate dehydrogenase complex and the catalytic activity of that enzyme is decreased. All of these things that I just mentioned, which are basically encompassed the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease can be overcome in a state of therapeutic ketosis. So with therapeutic ketosis, your blood glucose levels remain stable. The homeostatic mechanisms that maintain our blood glucose are very strong. So when you, when you eliminate all sugar and carbohydrates, your glucose does not go to zero. It'll stay in the low normal range, but our ketones are elevated. And we know that the ketones can largely replace or supplement glucose as a primary energy source for the brain. So as we age, our brain has impaired glucose metabolism. Work done by Stephen Cunane, for example, and others have demonstrated that as we age, the brain's ability to use ketones is maintained. Mm -hmm. So essentially what that means is that if but we- While, while glucose goes yes, down. Yes, while glucose goes down because they're the, at the level of the neuron and the mitochondria, there are many more steps required to oxidize glucose for energy, ATP, then are required to oxidize ketone bodies for energy to make ATP. So that's why if you have pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency syndrome or GLUT1 deficiency syndrome, the standard of care that we use, it's not an alternative therapy. The standard of care that we use is a ketogenic diet because it bypasses the glucose dysregulation 
to supply the brain with energy and restore brain energy metabolism. But it's not only restoring brain energy metabolism. When you restore metabolism, you're also restoring the balance of neurotransmitters. You're also decreasing neuroinflammation. There are many energy-dependent processes in the brain that function to keep the brain healthy. Included in that, and I put this towards the end because I think it's a downstream epiphenomenon, included in that is the accumulation of amyloid beta and tau plaques. So we are of the opinion that the etiology of Alzheimer's disease is incredibly complex, but there's without a doubt a metabolic component. So Dr. Mary Newport is someone who got me interested in this. And we were talking about her prior and her book comes out, I think in November called Keto Clarity, I believe. And I wrote the foreword to the book, just, just to plug Dr. Newport's mm -hmm. book, but her she was, there was a news article in the St. Pete Times, I'm trying to remember the date, 2007 or 2008. And it was the observation that giving her husband MCT oil and coconut oil together improved his performance in the mini mental state exam and also the clock test. He was being evaluated at the Bird Alzheimer's Institute at University of South Florida College of Medicine. And this made, you know, local news and then it made national news. And then this is just when I was just getting interested in ketones as neuroprotective agents for Navy SEAL divers, right? So I saw that, hey, you could elevate ketones in the blood independent of diet by giving MCT and coconut oil. So Mary and I connected. Long story short, it led to a PhD pro project who now Dr. Melene Brownlow, <laughs> she did her PhD at the Alzheimer Institute on a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease, which is tau and amyloid plaques. So these mouse models of Alzheimer's disease are not that great. So when people look at preclinical animal model research, you have to kind of view it with a grain of salt. Nonetheless, we saw a nice effect. In particular, we saw effect that the mice ran faster and farther on a rotor rod device, which is like a treadmill kind of like device. So and an, a really important problem with Alzheimer's disease is impaired motor function impaired stability. They fall, they lose their function, their independence, and that's a downstream slope. So we saw very nice you know, effects across the board, but not so much on tau and amyloid when you start the metabolic therapy late, at least in a mouse model. But Dr. Dale Bredesen, and you could just go to his book or maybe have him on your podcast, he's done a lot of work in patients using similar approaches, ketogenic metabolic therapy. So, so it was a long-winded way to say that Alzheimer's disease, the etiology is largely unknown in the medical literature, but there's a tremendous metabolic component. Yeah. Then the hallmark characteristics is impaired glucose metabolism, being in a state of therapeutic ketosis that can be achieved with time-restricted feeding, that can be achieved with ketogenic diets. I'm in favor of a modified Mediterranean-style ketogenic diet that we can talk about, or you can use supplemental ketogenic agents like medium chain triglycerides, ketone salts, or ketone esters can be used, or a combination of all these things to target brain energy metabolism. And Alzheimer's disease is characterized by the accumulation of amyloid plaque. So we think that that's more of a downstream epiphenomenon of the neuroinflammation, of the impaired energy metabolism, mm -hmm. and the associated cascade of events that are associated with just an impairment of metabolic function in the brain. Yeah. Thank you for breaking that down because yeah. 
when we hear impaired glucose metabolism, we don't, don't really know what that means and there's different yeah. <laughs> levels to it. Yeah. And so having an alternative fuel source, essentially it's able to bypass some of these processes that are dependent mm -hmm. upon glucose is really important because as you know, one of the kind of blanket labels getting thrown on Alzheimer's mm -hmm. now is type three diabetes. Oh right? yeah. It's kind of yeah. impaired glucose metabolism, yep. but also sort of like an insulin resistance taking place in the brain itself. Yep. And this issue is, of course, has been growing and growing and growing. And I love the fact that you said the, the etiology itself mm -hmm. is it's complex, not exactly, yep. we don't have a finger on it, but we, we know, we know that yeah. this has a lot to do with our diet, our sugar intake, but also yep. if we're talking about the buildup of these kind of, you know, metabolic wastes and amyloid mm -hmm. plaques and things of that nature, you know, we've got, we've got systems that help to clean house in the brain, for example, that yep. can get impaired from sleep deprivation. Yeah. Right. Oh, so sleep. researchers, That's I think it was the University yeah. of Rochester. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They found that the glymphatic system that helps to kind of mm -hmm. clean out these metabolic wastes is ten times more active, Absolutely. upwards of ten times more active when we're sleeping than yep. when we're awake. Yeah. And guess what? Another one of our epidemics is is sleep deprivation yep. in our society today. <laughs> Major contributor. Glad you brought that up. Yeah, because sleep is is highly correlated with you know neuroinflammation in the brain and even gut. You know, you miss a night of sleep and it's going to make your your. We we're talking about zonulin you know, being activated. And that's a, a protein that, that's associated with the tight junctions. It maintains, when it's released, it can cause leaky gut just by increasing paracellular transport across the intestinal epithelial lining, but also the blood-brain barrier. One night of sleep, one, if you are thrown into a situation where you have acute stress and epinephrine goes up and cortisol goes up, you can, you know, trigger Injury, infection, inflammation, diet, you know, all these things impact zonulin, which is, you know, classically associated with the gut permeability, but we have those same tight junctions in our blood brain barrier. And, uh, and, you know, once that's compromised, you're releasing things into circulation, things that we study in the lab, like lipopolysaccharide or LPS. And these can cause, like, sometimes people will have a traumatic event or give a big talk and shortly after, or travel to a location and come back and then they get a headache like the next day. That headache is like likely gut inflammation, which contributes to inflammation and permeability of the blood brain barrier, letting things into your brain, triggering a low grade you know, inflammation. And that can then trigger things like Epstein-Barr virus or, or herpes simplex virus or a shingles or things like that. And then that can trigger an event that people have, you know, but that's why we really focus on stress resilience. Yeah. So making the body, you know, implementing metabolic based therapies and other strategies to make the body more resilient in the context of these stressors. So the stressors that we study are extreme environments, you know, mm -hmm. the undersea environment, the altitude environment and the space environment. And then also what we call like being task loaded. You know, so we do a variety of psychological measures to understand why and how people get stressed and how to mitigate that. Yeah, and your your research isn't just theoretical. You are mm -hmm. actually spending time underwater. Can you talk yeah, a little yeah. bit about that? Because <laughs> you just blew my mind when you shared it before the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, my my research started doing, you know, just taking a little bit of a step back quickly, patch clamp electrophysiology on neurons when I did my PhD. Right. So that's a very, you're looking at cells, individual cells, then it led to animals and then it, well, then it led to tissues and then animal models and then human clinical trials. And then ultimately what we call operational experiments where we are the subjects 
on a IRB approved study by a federal agency. And in this case, it was NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operations or NEMO, N-E-E-M-O. So I was on NEMO 22 and my wife was on an all-female crew of NEMO 23. So NASA uses an underwater habitat called the Aquarius Habitat, which is off the Keys in Florida. And they bring astronauts to these habitats to train them on a variety of different things, including different operational activities that NASA has. You know, it could be devices that are used underwater in the underwater habitat. So basically tools, you know, techniques, procedures, and things are vetted out and tested in these space analog, what's called the space analog habitats. And there's, NASA has quite a bit of, they got like at least a dozen space analogs. High seas is one. We're involved in some of that here emissions. But the NEMO, NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operations, is really the only space training, you know, facility that actually uses astronauts. And three of those astronauts are on ISS now. Shell Lindgren, Samantha Cristoforetti, is an ISA Italian astronaut. So they're on Jessica International Was- Space Station. They're right on the now. International Space Station now. Yeah, they flew up in SpaceX Crew 4, which launched a few months ago. We actually went to the launch and got to meet them before because we spent a lot of time training with them at NASA, but also inside the habitat underwater for 10 days. You know, underwater. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Say it again. Ten, yeah, yeah. You spent 10 days yeah. underwater. 10 days underwater in the Aquarius habitat for NEMO 22 was my mission. That was back in 2017. And when you live underwater at, you wait, know, wait, we're just, at three Do you hear yourself right now, Dom? When yeah. you live underwater, that's yeah, not a normal become, thing to You say. become an aquanaut. And I think there's about 60 or 70 astronauts. Most astronauts in training now have to do this mission as part of their training. And 24 hours underwater, you become an aquanaut. And that, that basically means when you go recreational scuba diving, you dive under and then you have to come up in a predetermined amount of time according to the no decompression limits, right? So you don't want to have to go into a hyperbaric chamber or you can die. So if you're underwater and, you know, at 100 feet and you stay down for three hours and shoot up to the surface, you're going to die a very painful te- death from decompression sickness. It's also called the bends. When you live underwater, you are living in a state which is called saturation. So you're breathing the gases and those gases equilibrate with your body. So your body is retaining a lot of nitrogen and a lot of oxygen. And it's also the CO2 concentration. We're breathing 300 or now it's a little bit higher, 400 parts per million of CO2 now. But in the habitat of the International Space Station or in the space training analog, uh, it's about 3,000 to sometimes it went up to 8,000 parts per million of CO2, and that's considered hypercapnia. And when CO2 levels rise, it equilibrates with your body, and it actually hits these tight junctions and makes your leaky gut. And I tested my urine for neurotransmitters, my blood, my saliva. I looked at hormones. And the thing that jumped out is oxidative stress goes way up. And my C-reactive protein, which is always like 0.1 or non-detectable, went up to like 6.5 or something like that. That's because these extreme environments impact things like the gut microbiome and the integrity of the epithelial lining of the gut, but also the blood-brain barrier. So we have to understand, you know, what happens when you put people in these these artificial habitats. And you could say an office is like an artificial habitat with elevated uh, partial pressure of these breathing gases because we have to send people to Mars and back and bring them home safely. We need to 
create countermeasures to enhance their safety and resilience and performance in these extreme environments. And that's a big part of what we do in our lab, but also outside of the lab in collaboration with Duke, we have some studies too, but also as test subjects ourselves and also principal investigators on various things, we vet out different procedures. And something that we think is very important is optimizing our physiology to improve our brain resilience and our overall longevity, you know, in these extreme environments, which are very pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory. This is so fascinating, you know, and this is, there's two things here. It speaks really to the resilience and adaptability of humans. Yeah. And also when we, when we think about these extreme environments, we're talking about this kind of external environment. And even now we're in this kind of artificial put together (laughs) scenery setting. And, you know, the thing is, even as I say that, I realize that we are part of nature as humans and the stuff that we create is still nature. Yeah. But when we start to pull away from our, you know, the circadian patterns and all these different things, we start to alter what our genes are doing, which we talked about before we got started too. So I want to circle back and talk about genes in a moment, but the extreme environments, we, we were thinking about externally, but Mm -hmm. what we're also doing as a culture is creating these extreme environments internally with our food, for example. And then we can have external manifestations of that, which for you was eczema was something that you That's right. struggled with yeah. for a long time. Can you talk about that and how you yeah. resolved it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, that actually brought me to the field of nutrition. I was not a good student. I was like in classes that were, you know, that they put the dumb kids in, kind of growing at a very young age. And then as I got increasingly interested in biology, I was doing a little bit better. And then in high school, took like college biology. And by the time I finished college, I was like a fairly good student, but, but not great. But because I got very interested in biology because I wanted to enhance my strength, you know, in working out and nutrition, and that was a big aspect of it. But I learned that as I changed my nutrition, my eczema, which is something that I dealt with for many years, and a few cases I remember playing football where the eczema got irritated and it led to something called impetigo, which was like a staph infection and stuff. And this happened a couple of times. And you know, it was just no matter what creams, if I used corticosteroids and put them on, they would work for just a, like a week or two. And then they would have this rebound effect. Then they would stop working. Then I would stop using it. And then it was worse than when I was using yeah. the, the steroids. So I struggled with this constantly until I started studying nutrition. And I think it was Barry Sears came out with a book in the early 90s called The Zone Diet. And then, you know, I started reading a little bit more about this and I majored in nutrition as an undergrad and I just simply removed processed grains and was just went from a lot of pasta and bread. I grew up in an Italian family and, and we, you know, we still eat pasta, but I phased that out and kind of replaced it with sweet potatoes and brown rice and things. And then it got tremendously better. I started eating more fish and fish oils. And, and then occasionally I'd reintroduce grains and other things back in and bam, the, the eczema would come back like within about a week or two. So I repeated this experiment <laughs> a couple of times, if you want to call it an experiment, and it validated in my mind that this was a trigger. But this is before I knew anything about glyadin or gliadin or, you know, and, and all the factors that could be influencing the immune system, the gut and the immune system. So that sparked my interest in addition to the fitness, being very interested in fitness and and weightlifting into how nutrition could be used to treat an autoimmune. I became a believer even before people were talking about using nutrition to attenuate or even completely abolish, you know, autoimmune disorders. 
And, and that set me on a path for thinking about nutrition as the primary lever to pull for our overall health, not just, you know, metabolic health is tied to brain health, cardiovascular health and everything in between. So, uh, as I went down the nutrition path, I wanted to go to medical school and I saw, I thought the general consensus was that nutrition was kind of like a soft science. Right. So I double majored in biology too, to get that under my belt. And then the nineties was the decade of the brain. So I got steered into a neuroscience and physiology program instead of a nutrition program. I'm glad I did because I think it was a little bit more rigorous at the time, mm -hmm. although if I was to go back in time, if I was to go back into college now, I'd probably study nutrition and just study nutrition. I would study nutrition and neuroscience on the side instead of neuroscience and nutrition on the side. But when I would go to national conferences like Experimental Biology or Society for Neuroscience, I would gravitate right to the nutrition stuff. So I would, you know, at Experimental Biology, I was a physiologist, but I would actually look to see, hey, what's, what's on the nutrition, you know, what's being presented. And I would go to all the nutrition uh, thing. So I had this passion for nutrition. And then ultimately, my postdoctoral fellowship was basically designing nutritional strategies for oxygen toxicity seizures, which are a limitation for Navy SEAL divers when they use a closed circuit rebreather. And that ties into our underwater mission with NASA and everything. But yeah, that was a little bit of the circuitous theme, but it, it really, I think it may have started with the eczema because I, yeah. I really, I, you know, I was reading at the time muscle and fitness and other things. I would always read the little nutrition things here and there. And it was giving me clues that nutrition was a major player, you know, in our skin health and our immune health and things like that. And, and then overall inflammation. So Barry Sears's book talked about eicosanoids and prostaglandins and how to engineer your diet to reverse this pro-inflammatory state. And that was really the, the stepping stone for me. And then I, I kind of, I would talk to my my professors in nutrition about this and they kind of rolled their eyes because there wasn't really a favorable outlook it was always about low fat you know keep yeah. fat as low as possible keep the carbs high you know grains yeah healthy whole grains yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I had the same experience of course you know going to conventional mm -hmm. university yeah and you know but this speaks also your story speaks to the power of our psychology and how that yeah. influences our results because for somebody to hear coming into this, no. that you were a poor student at some point yeah. and you are one of the foremost brilliant thinkers in this field today. It's just really remarkable. But you got tied into that mm -hmm. because of a passion, because of an interest, because of a real world effect for you. And you kind of fleshed out your inherent genius through that experience. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you about this. Absolutely. Because, it's like your experience too. Like yeah. you immerse yourself and you can't, you can't manufacture enthusiasm. So you need to have, you need to be limbically, <laughs> mm. emotionally motivated on a subject to really do your best. Otherwise you're just kind of manufacturing enthusiasm. It's only going to take you so far, but Absolutely. you have, that's what I tell my students. It's like, well, you know, they could have the best CV or resume in the world, but I was like, well, I try to find out what internally motivates them yeah. and then put them in that position. So I think, I think that's what led to it. I found out what I, was very interested in. Yeah. Now here's the rub. There's this really interesting interaction that I don't know if you've really thought about this because you've had, you have that passion piece, yeah. but then you actually started to feel better, right? You start yeah. to get results in the real world. And when you marry those two things together, it's remarkable what happens. Mm -hmm. And this leads into this conversation today about mental health. 
yeah. and just being able to actually do some of the things that we're talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah. And it's, it's, when we start looking at some of the statistics right now, it's mind blowing. The leading cause of death right now currently for people between the ages of 18 and 45 is drug overdose right yep. here in the United States. And people don't, we see that and we think, of course, we have this tendency, this bias of like, oh, it's just these drug users, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and we fail to realize like, what are the underlying mechanisms that drive people towards this behavior? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes they're trying to self-medicate or mm -hmm. medicate through the collective agreement with their physician as well. Yeah. Because even with fentanyl, that's the number oh, yeah. one killer, by the way. When I say a drug overdose, yeah. specifically from fentanyl, right? Yeah. And so we're medicating, we're dealing with pain, physiological, psychological pain mm -hmm. that we're trying to address. So what I want to ask you about is how your work and even a ketogenic diet mm -hmm. plays into helping to address our mental health. Because mm -hmm. I think a big driver, just one of those foundational things behind our struggles with mental health, anxiety, yeah. depression, yeah. Yep. ADHD, has a lot to do with our diet. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up and nice segue <laughs> from, yeah, kind of following your passion. Because when you follow a nutrition program, not only does it change your physiology, but that physiology changes your mental state, right? And, and that's, I became, very interested in this, this idea, which was brought to me by a couple people were key influencers that more academics, not influencers in the conventional modern day social media sense, but they influenced me to a, an amazing degree. Dr. Jung Ro, he did a lot of work showing that ketogenic diet can change your metabolic physiology, which changes your brain neuropharmacology. So that work led me, it was actually email communication through him that I sent to a DO, Department of Defense program manager that ultimately ended up in my funding. So it was, he changed my mind on that. that and also there was a patient in the UK that had epilepsy and his name is Mike Dancer. And if you Google Mike Dancer epilepsy, you come up with a very interesting story. And he was sort of a, a, in the fitness world too. And the ketogenic diet not only controlled the seizures, it, it significantly improved his mental health. And I realized I could see that just from the back end that the ketogenic diet was an effective metabolic therapy that had good science behind it for a hundred years now, and that it was doing it by changing the neuropharmacology of the brain in a way that changes neurotransmitter systems. For example, glut more glutamate is converted to GABA and GABAergic drugs, as you know, <laughs> benzodiazepines, Valium, Xanax, these are anti-anxiety drugs, right? And we've seen this in our experimental models too, that if you induce a state of therapeutic ketosis, and that could be with fasting, that could be with a ketogenic diet, or it could be with supplemental ketones to elevate ketone levels in the blood and in the brain. There's a greater activation of an enzyme, GAD65 and 67, I think that convert, this is glutamic acid decarboxylase. That's how we make neurotransmitters. So we make a glutamate from alpha ketoglutamate, and then the glutamate then becomes GABA. Glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. And when we have epilepsy, when we have Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease, traumatic brain injury, we have an excess of glutamate in the brain, and that causes hyperexcitability and neurotoxicity in the brain. So what the ketogenic diet does is it balances, and this is just one neurotransmitter system, but it does it to multiple systems. It, it 
converts more of that glutamate, which is hyperexcitatory, to GABA, which is very calming, right? So that's why vigabatrin, for example, is an anti-epilepsy drug. Uh, the benzodiazepines, you know, hits the GABA receptor, GABA-1 receptor, or GABA-A. So, so in, in doing so, it became very apparent to me that, you know, the ketogenic diet was a legitimate medical therapy for epilepsy. You know, controlled studies by Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins, specifically Dr. Eric Kossoff and Mackenzie Cervenka are leading the way. They were mentored by the late John Freeman, who really spearheaded the use of the ketogenic diet at Johns Hopkins to develop that neurology ketogenic diet program there. And so, and then there was a movie about the ketogenic diet by Meryl Streep. And, and that really led to advance the visibility of the Charlie Foundation with Jim Abrams, who's here in, in Hollywood. He lives and he inspired me and I incorporated Jim into the TEDx talk that I gave a long time ago. But it was really, I, I knew in the back of my mind that the ketogenic diet was it's the only diet, there's no other diet that you can follow that actually stops epilepsy. You know, you can't, if you do a Mediterranean diet, a low fat diet or any other diet and even reduce calories, create a caloric deficit, it does not change brain neurotransmitter systems to control seizures. So the ketogenic diet does that. And that's a very unique feature. And that's what makes it a metabolic therapy. So in many cases where you have a psychiatric disorders, and this is sort of the segue to brain health or mental state, when you have a psychiatric disorder, like bipolar, for example, patients are often put on anti-epileptic drugs to control the manic episode, to control various aspects of psychiatric illnesses. And it kind of made sense, and this is sort of further validated by the work of Chris Palmer at Harvard and Dr. Shabani Sethi at Stanford, who really coined the term metabolic psychiatry. And there's, there's a big movement right now being spearheaded and funded by Jan and David Bazuki that is basically putting funds towards answering this question, does nutritional therapies like the ketogenic diet as a metabolic therapy, change brain energy metabolism and neurotransmitter systems to basically advance this entire field of psychiatry and to give, because psychiatric drugs are not working in many cases, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia, depression, these things are very complex disorders. The etiology of these things are largely unknown. With schizophrenia, there's a genetic component, but not so much with bipolar, not a whole lot with depression, but other things, there's a genetic component. So we know that neurotransmitter systems are being hit by ketogenic diet therapies and through brain energy metabolism, through uh, the gut microbiome, through reducing neuroinflammation and, and just by changing and losing weight. If you have patients, and in this case, if you have, you could use any diet and take someone who has depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and get them to lose weight it's going to change metabolic biomarkers like insulin, glucose, inflammation, and other things that would improve their psychological state and how they feel about themselves. But the advantage of using the ketogenic diet is that it has a much more profound effect at changing the, the brain chemistry and stabilizing uh, neurotransmission in a way that has particular efficacy at controlling the manic episodes associated with bipolar and probably the depressive episodes too. 
So there's a big movement being spearheaded right now by the Bazucki Brain Research Fund, in large part through the efforts of Dr. Christopher Palmer, who has a book coming out in November called Brain Energy. I have an advanced copy of that, and it's great. I think you should have him on. <laughs> so, so he's really advancing this as is a number of investigators. There's a big group that's expanding very rapidly. There's about two dozen people involved in this group, including Dr. Jeff Bolick at Ohio State University, who's been doing ketogenic therapies before I when I was even in grad school and didn't even know the ketogenic diet was sort of used outside of the world of epilepsy. So keep your eye on this field of metabolic psychiatry. And I think that once the research is conducted and published and accepted, we will have a very powerful tool in the toolbox that will be hopefully embraced by the medical community, by psychiatrists who may maybe rebrand themselves as metabolic psychiatrists, because this is a rapidly expanding field in, in research, thanks to some generous funding organizations through the bazookis who are supporting an aspect of our clinical trial using continuous glucose monitors. And to look at metabolic optimization and a component of that study that is also being spearheaded with partnership with Dr. Allison Hull of Florida Medical Clinic. We are looking at mood. We are looking at sleep. We are looking at various aspects of mental health by putting continuous glucose monitors on patients and coupling that with a low-carb ketogenic diet in non-diabetic patients. So just taking the average everyday person who is not necessarily have diabetes or any over medical condition and optimizing their nutrition, putting a wearable device on them as a behavioral tool, and then looking at not only a whole bunch of metabolic, cardiometabolic biomarkers, but also looking at your psychiatric biomarkers and mental mm -hmm. state. So we think that the the data coming out of that right now is not published. We've published it in abstract form, but we're analyzing a lot of the data now. But for one thing that, that really jumped out was non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So patients who are not obese, patients who did not have type 2 diabetes, when you put them on a low-carb diet, it reversed their hepatic steatosis, which is fatty liver. But what was really surprising is that they did not know they had fatty liver disease until we scanned them because it doesn't show up in the liver enzymes. And that's an ALT may be slightly elevated and that's like an early, but once your liver enzymes are above and outside the normal range, then mm. you already, you're, you're getting fibrosis right. in the liver. Right. So it's, it's like late. hard to reserve. Yeah. So you have to do, we tried to propose a CT scan, but that's radiation and the IRB didn't like it. So we did, we got a team that does very high resolution, you know, ultrasound. And we could image these. And people thought they were totally fine. You know, they didn't have diabetes. They didn't have any kind of irregularities, but they had fatty liver and the precursors to a potential fibrotic fatty liver that would be potentially irreversible. It's another one of those hidden epidemics, fatty liver. Yeah. And it also, is. you've mentioned neuroinflammation several times. There's certain yep. things that until we actually see symptoms, like it's so far gone, but you mentioned this continuous glucose monitor. Yeah. And yeah. also you mentioned someone at the Ohio State University as well. It yeah. reminds me of a study because with the ketogenic approach, we have a viable tool for improving mental health through that lens of, as you mentioned, changing neurochemistry, but also simply stabilizing blood sugar Yeah, because that is one of those, right now in the United States, we're knocking on the door of about 130 million 
citizens have type 2 diabetes or prediabetes right now. So chronic issues with blood yeah. sugar regulation. And there was a study that was done at The Ohio State University on married mm -hmm. couples. Uh -huh. And what they did was they gave them some devices to monitor their glucose. Mm -hmm. And the scientists were able to track this and stay on top of their data. Mm -hmm. And throughout the day, what they found was that when couples' blood sugar was dysregulated, they were more likely to have arguments with their spouse. And wow. here at the end of the study, they were far less likely to resolve their relationship conflicts when their blood sugar was dysregulated and dysfunctional, right? So yeah, again, yeah. we have another tool here to supplant because it's not just the fact of the ketogenic approach helping with the neurochemistry. Mm -hmm. It's pulling out that major culprit, which is ultra processed foods, likely high in sugar and yeah. high in ultra processed carbohydrates as well. Absolutely. And I was just talking, I was telling you, I'm at the Ancestral Health Symposium and Dr. Robert Lustig <laughs> it has a lot of insight in this and a lot of experience in treating patients and everything. And that's really like the, I think the low hanging fruit. I mean, especially sugar laden beverages, which are essentially like giving the body, it's liquid candy and it's like giving the body an IV bolus of glucose. Really, actually, it would be less dangerous giving an IV bolus of glucose because you'd have less of an insulin response. But when that bolus of glucose hits the gut, it's immediately absorbed and enters circulation and has a profound effect on our gut hormones, not only our gut hormones, but the, the neuronal circuitry associated with eating behaviors mm. and triggering, for example, a dump in dopamine, which you're going to then go seek more dopamine <laughs> when you, when you spike dopamine through these repeated glucose bolus. So, you know, not only it's not just an empty calories, but it's actually the, how these things affect brain, you know, chemistry and our gut microbiome and things like that. So these, this has to be recognized, and he's done a lot of work. So sugar delivered in the form of a liquid bolus is much more atherogenic, much more causes much more metabolic damage than sugar delivered in processed foods. They're both terrible, but the sugar delivered in a liquid bolus is on the order of magnitude of almost double of what you get, you know, depending on the food that it's incorporated into, just because of the metabolic response. Mm that's associated with consuming a liquid bolus of sugar. So, and that's really the low hanging fruit. I think we just need to educate people around that. And, but you go into impoverished communities and that's all you see on the shelves. That's all people are buying because it's, it's cheaper than the water, right? So you go to areas where we've done sort of education camps like West Virginia or like parts of Appalachia, for example, and that's all they drink is just Mountain Dew and Coke and things like that. And they don't, they give it to their babies you know, yeah. instead of formula. And, and that's like, that's, that's causing diabetes in infants before they even have a chance, you know, in life. And that's this really is not a joke. I've seen this yeah. in baby bottles. Yeah. Yeah. In my mm -hmm. family. Yeah. Oh, really? Know. Your family? Of yeah. course. Yeah. Wow. Like one of the first things that we do, like when a baby can hold on to a McDonald's French fry, <sighs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. and it's just a part of the culture. We don't realize yeah. that food has these impacts. And yet we have, you know, 90% of family members having yeah. some form of chronic disease yeah. and upwards of 80 to 90% being obese. Yep. But we don't realize, like, this is the thing about exposure, right? And, yeah. and making information like yours accessible and just frameworks of eating. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. 
Our microbiome plays major roles in regulating our metabolism, literally playing a role in determining how many calories are absorbed from our food, for example. Our microbiome also controls so much about our mood, with the vast majority of our body's serotonin being produced in our gut. And our microbes interact with these enterochromaffin cells and enteroendocrine cells that produce our hormones and neurotransmitters in our bellies. And one of the biggest issues we're seeing today is gut dysbiosis, where friendly microbes are getting overrun by opportunistic bacteria. One of the few amazing sources of nutrition that's been found clinically to reverse gut dysbiosis is highlighted in a study published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. It discovered that the traditional fermented tea called pu'er may be able to reverse gut dysbiosis by dramatically reducing ratios of potentially harmful bacteria and increasing ratios of beneficial bacteria. Another peer-reviewed study published in the journal Nature Communications uncovered that a unique compound called diabrownin found in traditional fermented pu'er has remarkable effects on our microbiome as well. And the researchers found that diabrownin positively alters gut microbiota and directly reduces hepatic, aka liver fat, and reduces lipogenesis which means the creation of fat. Pu'er is absolutely amazing on so many levels, and it's also a powerful adjunct to any fat loss protocol because it's been found to support fat loss while protecting muscle at the same time. And this was documented in a recent study featured in Clinical Interventions in Aging. Now the key is the source of the pu'er matters a lot. And the only pu'er that I drink uses a patented cold extraction technology that extracts the bioactive compounds in the tea at cold to low temperatures for up to eight hours. And this process gently extracts natural antioxidants and phytonutrients and preserves them in a whole bioavailable form. And this is the purest way to extract the phytonutrients for maximum efficacy. This pu'er is also wild harvested, making it even more concentrated in the polyphenols that we see having benefits in those clinical trials. Also, triple toxin screened for one of the highest levels of purity, tested for pesticides, heavy metals, and toxic molds, and making sure that it is not in your tea, which is common in most other teas. This is why I'm a massive fan of Peak Teas. Go to peaktea.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-T-E-A.com forward slash model and you get 10% off their amazing fermented pu'er and all of their other incredible teas. These teas are in a league of their own. Their pu'er is amazing. I'm a huge fan of their ginger tea as well. Go to peaktea.com forward slash model. Again, you get 10% off everything that they carry. One of the best investments in your health, supporting your microbiome, supporting your metabolism. It is absolutely amazing. Head over to peaktea.com forward slash model. And now back to the show. One of the things I really enjoy about ketogenic approach is the fact that it gives a framework, right? So you know that these things are not a part of this. And it's just that in of itself yeah. is so nourishing and healing versus, you know, just trying to micromanage calories yeah. while still including these processed foods or, you know, like yeah. soda and things like this. Just that one action yeah. of taking out this liquid barrage of sugar 
can yeah. be so changing for our Huge. metabolism, for our brain, the list goes on yeah. and on. And I want to ask you about this because we've circled around this several times. Okay. It was researchers at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. They published some really fascinating data recently and they were looking at neuroinflammation and they mm -hmm. felt that it was a double-edged sword of nutritional diseases that our mm -hmm. epidemics of neuroinflammation is contributing to insulin resistance and mm -hmm. obesity, mm -hmm. specifically adiposity of the gut. Yep. And, and adiposity of the gut, insulin resistance was creating more neuroinflammation, uh -huh. right? So having yep. excessive body fat was creating inflammation in the brain. Yeah. It's just, it's creating this vicious circle. And people might think, well, you know, my, my, mm -hmm. how do I know if my brain is inflamed, right? It's yeah. like our brain is so protective and not particularly having even pain receptors in the brain itself because the brain is responsible for telling you and managing brain uh, pain in other parts of the body. Mm -hmm. But when the brain is hurting, we often don't mm -hmm. know until it's too late. So let's talk yeah. a little bit about neuroinflammation mm -hmm. and how it's, we've mm -hmm. touched on a little bit how it's being created, but what are some of the things we can do to reduce this neuroinflammation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you talked about adipose tissue causing inflammation. And we know that one thing that comes to mind is that adipose tissue is an endocrine organ. <laughs> You know, right. when, when I was in nutrition studying in the 90s, we didn't talk about our fat being an endocrine organ, you know, releasing adipoconectin and of course, leptin, you know, as we lose weight and we get super lean, then, you know, our leptin goes down like proportionally and that sort of can factor and trigger other things and influence things like neuropeptide Y and ghrelin cause us to eat again. But, but that's why everybody has a set point. But I think that set point can be changed. But getting back to this theme of neuroinflammation and adipose, the best thing to do to reduce neuroinflammation is really to focus on, and I don't want to sound overly simplistic, but basically doing a nutritional and exercise approach, because I think nutrition needs to be coupled with exercise for maximum to alter body composition. So as we get a more favorable body composition alterations through a nutritional intervention, it doesn't have to be a ketogenic diet. It could be ideally like with older people, high protein, moderate fat, high fiber. So instead of low carb, I like to say high fiber. So just incorporating fibrous carbs like vegetables. And I know there's a little bit of a backlash maybe in the carnivore community about eating vegetables, things like that. But I definitely think you would have a very hard time arguing about the benefits of fiber. There's just so much information like on that. So, so first things first is just optimize, focus on optimizing metabolic biomarkers. And that would be your glucose levels, your insulin levels, which you should request getting measured and also request simply a, a marker of inflammation, high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Systemic inflammation is tightly coupled to neuroinflammation. If you have inflammation throughout your body and you don't have to do a full cytokine chemokine panel, but I think uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein is really core. The more data, I, I used to think very loosely about this. Oh, it's just a non-specific <laughs> non marker of inflammation. But the more studies that are coming out really are showing that your mental health, your, you know, the state of inflammation, your even things like epilepsy, you know, epilepsy and cancer are tightly linked to the level of systemic inflammation measured just with one biomarker, HSCRP. So optimizing our nutrition to eliminate processed sugars and reduce overall glycemic load will 
pay big dividends when it comes to reducing systemic inflammation, neuroinflammation. And I think something needs to be said about total calories, right? So any diet you follow, if you reduce the calories and create a calorie deficit, even, I hate to say this, but even in a processed food diet that's primarily processed food, but just reducing total calories, and you can do this through time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting, is going to produce some favorable changes. But the, the changes will be exponentially better if you improve the quality of your diet. So instead of just the quantity, you know, it's important to create a calorie deficit, but the easiest way to create a calorie deficit is to <laughs> improve the quality of what you're eating. It becomes astronomic because it's not overtly triggering neural circuitry that's making you want to eat. And, right. it's, and it's reestablishing metabolic flexibility and metabolic control much easier. So optimizing our nutrition, measuring these biomarkers, and really focusing on what I like to call just like biometric biomarkers or functional biomarkers. Like, you know, if you can do X amount of push-ups and chin-ups or whatever, and I saw your push-up challenge with Gabrielle the other day. So, and that was impressive. If you can do that. I'm not doing it with you. You've, <laughs> you've been underwater for 10 days. <laughs> Well, and uh, you exercised underwater too, didn't you? Well, yeah, we did. That of was course part you of did. what we had to do. Of course yeah, you did, yeah. Dom. So, <laughs> but, but just improving upon our function through exercise, primarily resistance training instead of aerobic training. Resistance training will pay the biggest dividends because you're building skeletal muscle mass, which increases not only skeletal muscle mass, but bone density. And that it's that skeletal muscle mass, which is the glucose sink. So our metabolic health is tightly coupled to the amount of muscle we have and us using that muscle. And I think that's going to reduce inflammation tremendously, just having more control, like metabolic reserve, if you say. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's, I'm so glad that you tied that together. Yeah. You know, and we've we've I, talked about, go, go ahead. Yeah. And you know, that was a little bit oversimplistic, but I think we're still kind of, we don't fully understand what is tr triggering neuroinflammation because you know, there are some people doing everything right. There are some people who have nailed their nutrition, some people who've optimized their diets, and some people who look like physical specimens, but they still have neuroinflammation. So in this case, I think it's important to look at the potential for a pathogenic, pathological agent, pathogenic agent causing this. So this could be a bacteria, it could be a chronic virus. So- uh, It could be a toxicant. It could be a toxicant. So that was the next thing. But I would urge people to, especially if they're in like the Northeast or anywhere really to get like tested for Lyme's disease or to look at like Epstein-Barr virus or CMV or herpes simplex virus, or if you're older to get like a shingles to, you know, get tested for shingles and that because some people, and it maybe it seems to be more prevalent in post-COVID, and I don't want to kind of get into all that, that discussion, but it seems like our immune systems are sort of hyperactivated now in a way that is triggering or increasing the pathogenicity of these chronic microbes that we may have. So that's an area of research that we're very interested in because there's some compelling data to to basically link some of these viruses to Alzheimer's disease. So viruses can cause chronic neuroinflammation, herpes simplex virus, Epstein-Barr. There's quite a bit of research on that and potentially Lyme's disease too. So it's a very, I was going to say nascent field, but people have been studying this for some time and there's, there's good data accumulating that points to various infectious agents. 
as being triggers for neuroinflammation. And I would then go back to that once you've dialed everything in and you're optimizing as much as you can, but you still have sort of chronic headaches or neuroinflammation or these episodes, you might want to look at various infectious agents causing that. No, this is still pointing us to a place of empowerment. What can tend to yeah. happen even with the, you know, outcomes coming from viruses, which there's some data, even, you know, COVID finding its way into the brain yeah. is that there's nothing we can do about this. And even when yeah. you started off the conversation with Alzheimer's disease, again, mm -hmm. knocking on the door of being in the top five causes of death in the United States right now, right. six or seven. And less than, I mean, if you put together some of the best data on yeah. this, less than 5% of this is due to true genetic defects. A lot yeah. of this has to do with our environment, our lifestyle and the like as a huge influence. Yeah. The same thing holds true with the expression of infectious diseases and viruses and the like. Why are we seeing this happen right now at this degree? We're, as a society, we're, we're the sickest nation truly in the history of recorded, mm -hmm. it's chronic diseases specifically. Yeah. In recorded human history, you know, our epidemics of obesity and insulin resistance and cancer and heart disease, the list goes on and on. It's, it's creating a state where we're far more susceptible to these things. So it's the opposite of resilience, right? So our yeah. body's being able to manage, because as, as you've mentioned, these viruses, the majority of people carry some form of like a herpes virus, for example, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and it can manifest due to these stress inputs and the stress. Yeah. Now, when you're stacking conditions against you with stressors, be it from your diet, emotional stress, environmental stressors, that's when these things can kind of take hold. Yeah. But what if we stack conditions in our favor yeah. in the opposite direction? That's what your work is really about. And I'm glad yeah. that you brought this up with the exercise component, you know, and you've been testing yeah. environment, like we're talking about extreme environments to see what humans can yeah. actually do. Yeah. And we can take on some of these things in our day-to-day -day life. So I want to ask you about this. And I know this is going to, this is a tough question. Okay. All right. But this is one of those okay. things that people tend to want to know is what are some specific things that we can eat that can support mm -hmm. our resilience? And I'm going to throw one out here. Yeah. Researchers at Auburn. So we're talking about neuroinflammation. They uncovered that oleocanthal-rich extra virgin olive oil mm -hmm. was effective at helping to reduce neuroinflammation, specifically mm -hmm. helping to heal the blood-brain barrier. Oh, yeah. I didn't have a dog in the fight. I didn't care if olive oil was yeah. remarkable. Or I, I got it. Like, I do have a bias because it's been utilized for so long, and yeah. it's such a low processing method to make it. Yeah. But the data, when I saw that, it's just like, there's something really special about this. I, so olive oil for the record is my favorite fat. So extra virgin olive oil. I mean, it's rich. You get a good quality extra virgin olive oil and it has, it's rich in polyphenols. It has sort of a little bit of bitter and even kind of a, maybe describe it as a hot taste. I have no less than, uh, always a quarter cup. So of a, a quarter to a half a cup of olive oil, I think a day of rich. And that, that's a lot of calories. You know, you work out the calories and it's, Lot, almost like a thousand calories of olive oil. I'll, I'll make dressings, you know, with it as the base, and I'll also put MCT. So it'll be like an MCT olive oil dressing. So you're getting ketogenic fats on top of the olive oil. Yeah, there's there's many foods that we just don't shouldn't necessarily. And this is an issue with the ketogenic diet was that the ketogenic diet, the classical ketogenic diet, was a four to one ratio in grams of fat. Uh, four parts fat to one part combination of protein and carbohydrates. So four parts fat, if you work out the math, the percentages, it's something like 85 to 90% fat, 
right? It's a classical ketogenic diet, so used for epilepsy. An issue with that is that no consideration was really taken to consider what types of fats were part of the diet. So it was like mostly saturated fat, dairy fat, and even hydrogenated fats back in the day. And it still worked even with all that. But we have so much room for improvement in the types of fats that we're incorporating into our ketogenic. And aside from ketogenic, let's just talk about low carb because a ketogenic diet is really a medical therapy. It's, it's rather extreme. Let's just talk about a low carb diet, which is, you know, maybe you call that a modified ketogenic diet, a one-to-one -one ratio, you know, of fats to proteins and carbs. So extra virgin olive oil, monounsaturated fats should be the predominant fat in your diet. I'm not hypercritical of saturated fat, but if you can bring that down to like 20% or less, like the early ketogenic diets were almost all saturated fat, you know, but if we bring that down and make the cornerstone of the fat within our diet, monounsaturated fats and olive oil being a large percentage of that, that's going to be super important. So oleic acid, so eggs surprisingly have very little saturated fats and they're super rich in uh, phospholipids and choline in, in vitamins. And so egg yolks are like eggs and fish and grass-fed meats, you know, but even if you can't have grass-fed, just beef is fine. We tend to eat organ meats. We eat a lot of uh, heart and we eat a lot of liver and I eat a lot of small fish like sardines and have a lot of mackerel. So that's what I had this morning, mackerel. And nuts I, I use to some extent, but not not a whole lot. If I eat a lot of nuts, I think just tend not to settle too well. But yeah, so at the cornerstone of the fat composition in a low-carb diet, a ketogenic diet, should be monounsaturated fats and also a, a higher percentage of, of omega-3 fatty acids. And when you look at the omega-3, omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, you really want that to be, I mean, the modern diets are something like, I read 20 to 50, uh, 50 parts omega-6 to omega-3, like it's highly, highly skewed towards Crazy. these omega-6 pro-inflammatory fats where you should kind of, I mean, some authors talk about five to one, but I mean, when I did the math on my diet, it's more like three to one, some days almost one to one. So if you could do a three to one omega six to omega three ratio, I think that's great. I mean, if you could do like a one to one ratio of those fats, so docosahexaenoic acid, like DHA and EPA are super important for biological membranes. Our immune system are, they're basically like taking a low dose NSAID drug, but they have many benefits on top of that. And so, yeah. So when you talk about specific foods, fish and eggs are should be top of the list and organ meats should be thrown in there beef and you know chicken i kind of prefer turkey we eat wild game like a lot at our house but there's with fish you have so many different kinds of fish mm -hmm. you know too so you can do shrimp you can do oysters and mussels and things like that and there's just you're getting things like selenium which are super important not only for detoxification but for antioxidant enzyme systems things like that. So you're getting a lot of micronutrients that you would otherwise not get if you're just eating like chicken and broccoli or whatever. So I'm a huge fan of broccoli so too, but, uh, but yeah. And then let's talk about carbohydrates, what you can and can't have. I'm a huge fan of, when I think of carbohydrates, I just think of fiber. So fat, protein, and fiber, right? So the protein can come from the sources that I was just talking about. Green leafy vegetables, the more green and darker, the better. And you're going to get that chlorophyll. You're going to get micronutrients. And, you know, salads are 
salads that are rich in colors, you know, broccoli. I'm a huge fan of broccoli and broccoli sprouts. Chlorella and spirulina are two supplements that I often take when I'm traveling and I don't have access to like eating salads or things like that. When I lived in the undersea environment, <laughs> one of the things, because I knew I was in a high oxidative stress environment, the partial pressure of oxygen was higher and things like that. I couldn't have salads or fresh vegetables. So I was taking energy bits, which is a spirulina and chlorella supplement you know, but it's highly very dense in that. So, and it's, and it's rich and it's, you're talking about a food that's functioning as a very powerful antioxidant supplement. And it's also a form of protein. So when we go to space exploration, we have to build bioregenerative systems to grow these vegetables that are going to be super important. Broccoli are super, will be super important things to incorporate into the diet. In addition to protein sources that need to be engineered and figured out too. Awesome. What's so interesting about spirulina, for example, is that NASA yeah. actually kind of pressed it back into popular culture. This was in the Absolutely. 1980s when yep. they were initiating research that it could be a nutrient-dense source of nutrition for astronauts, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yep. and the crazy thing is, of course, it's been utilized for thousands of years yep. as a protein source from cultures at different parts of the world, you know, whether yeah. it's, you know, South America or Africa and yep. to have it be like a potential space food. Yeah. Really speaks volumes about the nutrient density. It does. Yeah. So yeah, not only is it a source of protein, but it's in source of, can be a source of omega-3s and it has a super rich array of antioxidant compounds that can offset the oxidative stress environments. And that's why I, you know, took spirulina energy bit supplements, you know, in that. And I would, you know, ideally we want to be able to grow our own, like, you know, in space. The former director of NASA Life Sciences, Dr. Marshall Porterfield, is actually spearheading a huge project in regenerative farming at Purdue and creating like a big biodome facility where a lot of these regenerative technologies are going to be employed to basically design, engineer, and optimize the life support and food systems in space. So yeah, he's a, a good friend of mine and really spearheading this whole regenerative ag thing that's going to have profound implications in space. But like, like many technologies that are developed by Department of Defense and NASA, you know, or DARPA, like GPS, which got me here, are the public is going to use. So the public is going to benefit tremendous from, from this kind of research in uh, regenerative ag. And I'm excited because I grew up on a farm and we live on a farm, you know, I'm a neuroscientist, but I'm a kind of a farmer deep, deep at heart. So I'm super interested in, yeah, yeah. these agricultural technologies. This is one of the things that really stands out about you that I admire is the fact that, you know, again, you being somebody who's living on a farm and mm -hmm. putting yourself into these extreme environments as well, whether it's underwater, whether it's you know, knocking on the door of being in space and you know, putting these things to the test, but also educating and sharing what you learn. You know, right now you shared, you've got two continuous glucose monitors on. I do. I got an Abbott Libre and a Dexcom G6 on the other end. So I'm comparing the two as far as accuracy and precision yeah. and also reliability because I bang around outside and do a lot of physical work outside. And yeah. sometimes other ones are more prone to being knocked off yeah. than the other. So vetting it out is important. Both of us are big yeah. fans of Levels as well. Oh, yeah. And they've got such a great, the, the reason that I love them, one of the reasons is their data points in their yeah. collection. 
and being able to kind of stratis stratify that for us to take those little pieces, like what are some of the most likely kind of culprit foods out there yeah, and, and things of the like. And also, by the way, guys, levels just opened up because they were in beta, beta for, a, for long a long time. They just opened yeah. it up where you can get access now and they've got a new version of it where you don't have to check in with your phone. I don't know if you know yeah. about this. Yeah, so just, yeah. Of yep. course you know, yep. of course you know. <laughs> Anyways, go to levels.link yeah. forward slash model. That's L-E-V-E-L-S dot link forward slash model. The line, the waiting line is over. You can get access right now. I just got a yeah. new one at home. And then seeing yeah. you, you got, yeah. you're doubled up. So now I'm, I'm like, I'm up. definitely yeah, gonna yeah. go today or tomorrow and yeah. put on the new one and, and give it a trial run. I learned yeah. so much just getting that feedback, even from you know, different times of day, stress levels, all the things. Of course, we yeah. attribute it towards our dietary intake, but yeah. it can provide us with a wealth of information you can have right there in your hand. It's personalized Absolutely. for you. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I partnered with Levels. There's a lot of CGM companies out there, but they were, and, and I've, you know, talked with all them prior to sort of being an advisor for Levels, that they were super interested in improving the existing technology. So through research. So they were going to, you know, put money behind research and determine and do as much research as possible to optimize their product as a tool for metabolic optimization. And we are specifically using continuous glucose monitors and the Levels app as a behavioral tool to influence the behavior around eating choices to optimize your diet. And this is in non-diabetics. We have a, a registered clinical trial look at, you know, at non-diabetics. And I think that's where this really comes in, into play. And I know, I even know, you know, insurance companies are really putting money into this idea that if you have a whole family history of, and everyone over 50 has type two diabetes, then people within that family at the age of 30, 40 or whatever should have a continuous glucose monitor to preemptively monitor postprandial glycemic excursions, if you want to make a scientific, and, and glucose fluctuations in response to meals. And to so that individual can make better choices on the types of foods they're eating, on the amount of food that they're eating. And they could, you know, insurance companies can pay a lot of money later, or they can pay a little bit of money now and actually reimburse patients who have maybe predisposed to diabetes. So I think this is like a super important thing, but people, they don't have to wait for their insurance companies to cover it. I mean, this technology is available through levels. And most importantly, a CGM just gives you your glycemic variability throughout the day. What the levels app does is it gives you highly actionable information and tells you what to do. And you get a metabolic score that is part of a complex algorithm that looks at the rate of rise, area under the curve, complexity analysis of the CGM trace and all these things that will give you actionable information about what you should eat and shouldn't eat and even exercise and sleep. All this data is sort of incorporated into the app. And it's been very insightful for me. I consider myself a pretty insightful person when it comes to choosing, but there were some foods that I thought I knew I didn't quite feel well after I've eaten them. And the CGM really elucidates and clarifies why that's the case. It's fascinating, yeah. especially again, coming from somebody like you getting that stamp of approval on that. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable. Again, that's levels.link for slash model. Yeah. And man, it's so awesome talking with you and you know, I, I just really appreciate the work that you're doing and the way that you're going about it. 
because it's important. Like right now we have an opportunity to help shift culture Absolutely. and you're involved in yeah. so many different areas of that. And uh, if you could, can you let people know where they can follow you, where they can yeah. get more information, Absolutely. just get into your world? Well, thanks for asking. Yeah. So I really appreciate what you're doing in the podcast world and bringing your expertise and information to a huge audience, which we have. Our lab was super motivated for educational outreach, as you have been. And we created the Metabolic Health Summit. So I'm a co-organizer for that. And that was in Santa Barbara a few months ago. Rhonda Patrick was one of our keynote speakers, as was Zhang Ro, who got me into this whole field. So I would encourage people to go to Metabolic Health Summit. We offer CME credits and you could do that. And there's a lot of content that's still there that you can get educational credit for. And I think that content will be available until October. So everybody in the space, you know, so many people that many of your listeners are familiar with were speakers at this event. So Metabolic Health Summit, please check that out and the content that's available because we had a whole virtual platform. And my website is ketonutrition.org, ketonutrition, all one word, .org. And we have a blog every two weeks on different subjects. The last one was on lean mass hyper responders, why people get elevated LDL cholesterol on a low carb ketogenic diet, which is a question I get asked most. So check out that blog. And we also have a newsletter. So please sign up for our newsletter at ketonutrition.org. And I send you things in advance, sort of the cutting edge products that I'm using, I'm testing and different and different science and, or podcasts that I'm doing. So this podcast will go into our newsletter and send out to all our subscribers. And I'm excited for that to come out and share this information. Awesome. And the blog is amazing. You know, Thank the you. articles Appreciate there that. are so good. And, you know, I wouldn't expect anything less from you, man. And again, Thanks. thank you just for being who you are. Thank you for stopping by to share your wisdom. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Sean. Appreciate it. Thank you so very much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Such an important tool to have in our superhero utility belt is the awareness of this ketogenic framework. And what we're talking about really, again, is just changing the information that we're utilizing for cellular communication and what we're making ourselves out of, the energy substrates. All of those things can tend to get compartmentalized in science today, but they all work together in one sovereign human being, all right? So how can we stack conditions in our favor? Let's keep this tool for when we need it. There are also, of course, performance applications. There are applications with cancer. It's one of his primary fields of research. There are applications with weight loss, but this doesn't mean that it has to be the end-all be-all with a ketogenic framework. It's a tool that we have access to. And to have the science behind it and to have this available to us is something really special. So again, we really scratched the surface on this topic. Dom and I had multiple conversations about some of the other offshoots of what he's working on and things that are coming up in the future. And it's really special because we've got some really great minds out here asking these questions, testing things, and helping to see results for our citizens. But most importantly, it's about exposure and getting this education into more people's hands. That's why it's so important to continue to share the show and to be a walking representation of what's possible. That's what the Model Health Show is all about. So thank you so much for sharing the show out to the people that you love. You can send this directly from the podcast app that you're listening on. You can subscribe if you're listening on the audio version. Over on YouTube, we've got exclusive content that we're sharing on YouTube as well coming up. So make sure that you're subscribed on YouTube. And of course, you can take a screenshot of this episode, share it out on social media. You could tag me, I'm at Sean Model, and I'd love to see that. 
Listen, we've got some epic shows coming your way very soon. Powerful masterclasses, world-class guests. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.